I'm very happy to be able to speak to you all this morning. Uh, I'm going into my ninth year of teaching at Houghton, and this is the first time that I've preached at the college church. If you don't like what I have to say, you may see me again in 2022. Um, (laughs) uh, Some of you don't know me very well. Let me give you a little background. I teach a fairly wide array of courses uh, at the college, ranging from Christian theology to world religions and new religious movements uh, to understanding postmodernism. And one of my abiding interests in the postmodernism course uh, is the way that people use stories, the way they construct stories in order to make sense of things, all the way from their lives to stories of communities to national stories to the course of world events. And these stories tend to follow fairly predictable scripts, uh, depending on the values that you want to emphasize or the point that you're trying to make. Um, Christians do this no less than anyone else because we believe that our stories, our scripts, if you will, are enveloped by a much larger story of God's plan to redeem the world. Uh, So, for example, someone who is going through a terrible illness or through financial uh, ruin uh, will tell their story, will script things in such a way in which God's faithfulness uh, is emphasized. Or there may be some multi-millionaire athlete who scored the winning touchdown and you know what he's going to say post-game. You know, God really helped us pull that one off because uh, apparently Jesus' plans to reconcile all things to himself include following the NFL. Um, And we follow these scripts very carefully. You never hear that athlete say, well, yeah, God really let us us down in the third quarter. You know, I don't know what he was doing. In little communities especially, places like Houghton, um, people are very careful to follow a script Uh, when we talk about things and and the way that we treat each other. Uh, Because, for example, if I blow up at someone for driving like an idiot on Highway 19, and you know you're out there, um, (laughs) I'm probably going to have to face you in the hallway up the hill, and then I'm in the no-eye contact zone, right? Um, So in our day-to-day interactions, it's best to keep to a fairly conventional script. It's better than creating a crater in the community um, because that's when the gossip machine shifts into high gear. Did you hear what John Kay said? And he's a theology professor, you know. Um, (laughs) And when we talk about larger stories, uh, we tend to follow a script in such a way that ennobles the story. So when we talk about the story of America and westward expansion. We tend to wrap that in a sense of America's destiny for the world. Or when we talk about the course of western progress, we script that in a way that we talk about the prosperity and the freedom that that sort of thing brings. Sometimes this way of doing things is okay, but the problem is when following the script on account of the way you think the story needs to go, prevents you from being real with people or just telling the truth about things. Um, If you're having a serious crisis of faith, if you're feeling God abandoned, is Houghton Church, is any church, 
the place where you can be really honest about that without having people either shun you or getting all preachy on you. I found through the years small communities can be pretty lonely places as well. And in terms of larger stories, well, for instance, our Native American friends down the road have their own take on Western expansion. You know, and millions of people around the world in sweatshops in India and in Bangladesh, they have their own perspective on the real cost of Western progress, which many of us here in the West conveniently ignore because it's all about getting cheap goods at the Walmart. One of the interesting things about this latter part of Acts is the way the script disrupts our sense of the way we think a good Christian story should go. It's difficult to preach from this part of Acts because several subplots are all linked together. And it's a bit like jumping into an individual episode of NCIS or Walking Dead or whatever your favorite series is without knowing what the without knowing what the arc is. It can be confusing. So basically, here's the arc. Here's the, back, here's the backdrop to the passage that was read this morning. If you go back to Acts chapter 1, Paul's opponents in Jerusalem had been stirring trouble up for him, and he's arrested by the Roman tribune, and he's about to be flogged. And you remember, you might not survive a Roman flogging. Well, when they find out that he's a Roman citizen, alarm bells go off all over the place, and he's sent to Governor Felix to have his case heard. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Just like today, when any matter goes to court, oh boy, it takes on a life of its own. Felix is succeeded by Governor Festus. So you've got Felix, now you've got Festus, who decides to leave Paul in prison because, well, why wouldn't he? It's the easy and popular thing to do. When Paul finally gets his chance to plead his case before the new governor, he appeals to the emperor, but not before he gets his chance to make his case before King Agrippa, who knows Paul's innocent and who utters the infamous, the notorious words, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Again, once things are in the appellate system, the script has to be played out to its bitter end. Some of you know this. So Paul's put on a ship with other prisoners, and they begin to make their way to Rome. Now, when they get around Crete, which is sort of south of Greece, for those of you who are Mediterraneanly challenged, they begin to meet these powerful storms that basically push them all the way to Malta, which is south of Sicily, which is a crazy long way from Crete if you're in a sailing vessel. This episode in chapter 28 is particularly interesting to me. The Maltese are very hospitable, but very superstitious. So as Paul's gathering brush for the fire, you know, he's soaked, he's freezing. There's a viper there who's like, ah, oh, hand sandwich, right? And he fastens onto that hand, right? I mean, can life get much better, right? I'm shipwrecked, I'm freezing, now I'm snake bit, Okay. Uh, but, you know, the locals now, they're standing around, they're like, this guy here, you know, what's up with him? He must have done something really bad, but the gods aren't going to let him get away. But Paul's this fierce missionary honey badger who just shakes the snake off and nothing happens to him, right? You know, he doesn't care. So now the locals are standing around thinking, 
this guy's some sort of divine rock star, right? Who's landed on our rock in the middle of the sea here. And the head man of the island, Publius, he's so generous, he's hospitable, offers this overwhelming hospitality, which is great. But his dad has dysentery. You know what the symptoms of that are. Fever and diarrhea. Apparently, even the Maltese shouldn't drink the water on Malta. Okay. Yeah, and no historians ever said, yeah, that indoor plumbing in first century Malta, that was the best, right? Um, (laughs) You got to wonder what Paul's thinking at this point. First, I get shipwrecked. Now I'm snake bit. Now I've got to lay my hands on a guy who has dysentery. You know, hashtag having a blast in Malta, right? (laughs) Well, thankfully, God's kingdom is greater than the neuroses of any storyteller, okay? And that miraculous healing really opens up the floodgates because now Paul's got people lining up all over the island who need free health care. Maybe I shouldn't have put that in with this crowd. Okay. And the locals are so overwhelmed uh, that they just really pull out all the stops. Uh, And they're so gracious and they supply the needs of these visitors. Unusual and wonderful things happen sometimes when you're shipwrecked on Malta. Paul ends up spending three months on Malta and knowing the Maltese, you know, probably playing bocce or something before again, they take off for Rome where he lives for another two years under house arrest, talking about Jesus over fettuccine and good red wine to his Italian neighbors and having this blowout with his Jewish opponents, which we didn't read about before he gets his chance to make his appeal before the emperor. So is this a happy ending or what? But do you know how Paul's story eventually ends? Luke's being a bit artful here, which is okay. Um, According to Eusebius, at any rate, Paul's set free eventually, but he ends up getting his head cut off. Now, most historians would probably dispute Eusebius' account that Paul made his appeal before Caesar, but most people would agree he's, he's finally beheaded in Rome. You know, epic win, the court system works, right? Except for the beheading bit. That's the problem. (laughs) Being a little snarky here. Uh, But here's the thing. At so many points in the book of Acts, even before you get to the way Paul's story ends, the script just disrupts the way we think a good Christian story should go. Because as most Westerners who are saturated in entertainment, we're convinced that stories need to have a happy ending in a fairly predictable manner. I mean, think about it. You know, after you've been beaten up or imprisoned, you and Robert Downey Jr. get to wreak vengeance and restore order and get the girl at the end. Or if you're a nerd, you know, you find a way to upload the virus into the alien mothership, save the planet, and get the girl at the end. We tend not to tell stories like Paul. Mired in a corrupt and inefficient court system, fail to convert King Agrippa, get shipwrecked on Malta, eventually get to Rome and turn away from your own people. Paul's not a very good Jew for Jesus. Get set free and finally get your head cut off. 
Sounds like a European art house film to me, you know. It's a strange script. Uh, It's not the way many people in the modern West think a good Christian story should go. It's not the way we would have written it. Um, Paul doesn't even get the girl at the end. Lots of people think Paul had trouble with women. That's for another message. Uh, but, But many Christians, including some very popular writers, very popular TV preachers, and I follow lots of these people because... I'm fascinated by theological train wrecks, uh, think that a life of faithfulness should be marked by this steady stream of successes and what they call the favor of God. You seal the deal. You advance your career. You raise perfect kids. You enjoy good health your whole life. You retire in Del Boca Vista. Right? There's not a lot of room for shipwrecks in Malta and getting your head cut off. We all want the happy ending. (laughs) The thing is, the way this story runs in Acts is a kind of pattern that you see repeated over and over again in the biblical narrative. God says to Israel, hey, you're my chosen people. Great. How does slavery and subjugation and diaspora sound? Good, huh? God says to Jesus, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. How does torture and rejection and death sound? Pretty good, huh? The individual stories in the Bible aren't particularly concerned with happy endings as we think about them, which makes preaching from them in this culture really challenging. Generally speaking, you need to take a step back and get a wide angle for the larger story to see what God is up to. Otherwise, you end up taking these stories and turning them into sort of cheesy object lessons or sort of Joel Osteen a cheery sort of parables at the end, right? That kind of step back is really necessary in a story like this in Acts, especially if we want to ask how this script might bisect, might intersect the story of our lives. So if we take that big step backward to get the wide angle, what are some basic confessions we can make? Here's the first big confession I think we can make from this story. God isn't caught off guard. God's plans are not thwarted by any shipwreck that we might experience. And at this point, people like to say things like, God is in control. No matter what happens, God is in control. I'm careful anymore to use that kind of language because sometimes people hear that to mean, oh, God planned my child's illness. God planned this tragedy. God planned this disaster. And somehow he needs all of this stuff for some great cosmic plan that he's putting together. When the truth is frequently, you know what? I think we're the ones who like to be in absolute control. We're the ones that like to micromanage everything and we project that control obsession onto God. There's a popular form of theology that celebrates that sort of view, and I think God comes off looking pretty badly. You know, somehow God really needs things like leukemia and oil spills and more Will Ferrell movies, right? Okay. (laughs) 
Armenian theologians have always said there's a whole lot of stuff within God's permissive will that happens before the kingdom arrives in its fullness. And whatever trouble that position might get you into, it's a lot better than attributing evil to God or saying God ordains certain things, therefore they, they can't be evil. Any theology that can't distinguish between the work of God and the work of the devil is pretty bad theology, if you ask me. More practically, though, sometimes this control obsession that we have keeps us from being really honest with ourselves and others when we're working through a situation. I mean, maybe you're rushing to the ER or you're standing to the gravesite, you know, or you're just thinking about the countless millions that have died due to war or pestilence and famine, and you're thinking, good thing God is in control because really bad things might happen if he wasn't. The life of faith is hard, folks. Sometimes it really does seem like things are spinning out of control. But it's difficult to confess that to other believers sometimes because they think something's wrong with you. I think one of the most well-known biblical texts that gives people trouble when thinking about this is the scene in which Jesus is hanging from the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And I don't think he's play acting at that point. I think we have to trust the biblical text at that point and not try to slip behind the text, the text and speculate on what's going on in Jesus' mind. I think going through that radical crisis of feeling God abandoned is one of the reasons why the risen Christ is able to help us in every trial we face. And if he could voice this and scream it out to God, so can you. A mark of Christian maturity is being able to be brutally honest about your situation and where you are in the midst of it while painfully learning to confess God's faithfulness in the big picture. And that takes time. That's a painful process. Otherwise, it's simply pious cliches that we recite to ourselves and to others. And if I can add this also, Another mark of Christian maturity is being able to gently help those who are shipwrecked in Malta come back to the point where they can begin to confess again. And it's a real gift to be able to do that sometimes without words. Because saying something trite about God to people who are shipwrecked and ragged on Malta is one of the most damaging things that you can do to them. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's all great for God. His plans aren't thrown off course, but what about me? I mean, he has these crazy, mad, divine skills, but what about me? How does that help me? I said, I have three confessions to make. Here's the second big one I'd like to make. When you've been shipwrecked on Malta, God will provide both help and opportunities to minister in Jesus' name in ways that you can't imagine you will find a Publius. You will find those generous Maltese. You will find those opportunities to minister that emerge from your shipwreck. And in God's economy, you know what, folks? Maybe it's those moments of loving and healing and playing bocce with the locals in Malta 
that count for far more than what we think we can accomplish in Rome. (laughs) It's amazing to me how we've all learned to mouth that living out the gospel is all about relationships. We've all gotten relationshipy. And yet we act like our big strategies in Rome or Wesleyan headquarters or on Capitol Hill are what really matters. But what do we do? How do we behave? How do we comport ourselves when we're shipwrecked in Malta? That's a very important question. Because none of us knows what the immediate future holds. Not as individuals, not as a community, not as a nation, not as a species on this planet. The economy tanked a few years ago. You all know it could tank again. Someone sent me an article recently from the satirical easing the onion And the report was that the financial sector thinks that, yeah, it's about time to ruin the global economy again. You know, might not be satire. You know what I'm saying? The college could close. Good Christians lose their homes and their retirement. Christians aren't exempted from these things or a thousand other things. But in the aftermath, are we willing to look around and say, where's Publius's father? How can the work of the gospel continue? How can we be a part of that now and here? Because as you know, our plans, our institutions, our scripts are all subject to wide change, dramatic change. And for that matter, we have to be able to receive help and encouragement from very unlikely quarters, maybe even from all the wrong people. I mean, for all we know, Publius was the head man of the island because he was head man of the local crime syndicate. Stranger things have happened on Malta, right? Um, Christians sometimes think that, well, it can only be God's provision or, or God's word of encouragement if somehow the name Jesus is embossed on it like a Nike logo. Nike logo sweatshop, that's a bad analogy, but you see what I'm saying, okay? I think God's economy includes far more people than those who are just like us. And we have to be open and discerning. And finally, I'd like to confess this from this passage. Our lives, I believe, are really subplots within a much greater script that God is writing. And we haven't got to the final scene yet. It's very tempting to read a story like this and then think about our own personal stories and turn the whole thing into a kind of parable about overcoming adversity. But at the macro level, what's going on in this passage is simply the fulfillment of what the risen Christ said at the very beginning of Acts. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I think that the more we come to be involved in this story, the more we can be willing to just let go of so many things that don't matter. You know, given the direction that the world is heading, the global challenges that we're facing, we're seeing a massive increase in eschatology, in apocalyptic literature. How is it all going to end? I mean, think about the past few years. We had the Mayan doomsday calendar craze, the Harold Camping fiasco. Uh, Then we saw this whole spate of end of the world movies, 
Now it's marketing to doomsday preppers. All of this stuff is predicated on the notion that it's all going to end very badly. You know? And that's an understandable intuition. You know? But I think that this provides the church an extraordinary opportunity to be able to say to people, you can commit your lives, you really can, to something greater than yourselves. The little scripts that we write for ourselves can actually mean something when they're woven into a much grander epic, the end of which we can hardly imagine. The shipwrecks we experience in the cause of Christ, the beheadings that still occur in various ways around the world, All of these things are really worth it. And there's a certain level of peace and solace and confidence in knowing that. Of course, I think any religious message in the West that says to people, hey, want to follow Jesus? How does shipwrecks and maybe beheadings sound? I don't know that's going to meet with a very positive response. But God promises the story will not end there. So is this a happy ending or what? Thank you all so much for your kind attention this morning. God bless.